0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing white evangelicals and their anxieties about their place in American society. Why do so many white evangelicals, despite holding tremendous political power, feel threatened? How do their anxieties shape their political involvement? How do evangelicals recruit new people to join their churches when they know that many younger Americans see them as potentially incompatible with today's culture? And how are white evangelicals responding to issues like Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ equality today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Sarah Diefendorf. She's the author of the book, The Holy Vote, Inequality and Anxiety Among White Evangelicals. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming April issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Sarah. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing
1: well, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Thank you. So that listeners know, to write The Holy Vote, you spent several years immersed in a white evangelical community in the Pacific Northwest made up primarily of middle and upper middle class white evangelical Christians. And your book opens with this great scene on the Sunday morning after Donald Trump's inauguration. And you're sitting in this evangelical church where the head pastor and associate pastor, a white man and a white woman, express concerns about the messiness of the world. And one might think that a large evangelical congregation would have spent that Sunday morning following Trump's inauguration celebrating and doing victory laps. But you paint a picture of ongoing concern. So in the years since Trump's election, what has been making white evangelical communities anxious? What are they most worried about?
1: Yeah you're you're right Brett the sunday morning after the trump election um i expected celebration and joy right mm-hmm. i witnessed concern Tension, some relief, sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but for the most part, kind of this continued collective anxiety. People wanted to pray. <laughs> in fact, the evening immediately following Trump's election, uh, so earlier in the week, the mm-hmm. church held a brainstorming and prayer session, and they called it that. Uh, mm-hmm. They felt that it was important to come together during what they called this season of transition for the nation. Um, and so I went to this event. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, adults were talking about job security, concerns for the church, and and the work to come. And so this wasn't a celebration, but really it was a call to action. And just a a few days later, uh, the Sunday after the election, as you alluded to in the opening of my book, right, the lead pastor got up in front of the congregation and he was quite somber. He talked about the messiness, as you said, um, but he also talked about how he envisions that their church is on the operating table, and that's quite the image, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he said that much like the nation, that that they are a mess and that they need fixing and healing. And in fact, he he specifically named the recent presidential election as an example of this collective mess that we find ourselves in. Hmm. And so uh, this was this was not a one off. The church and leadership frequently talked about this messiness of the world, this messiness that they're experiencing internally. And very importantly, that the church's call is, is to not respond to this messiness with what they kept calling ugliness. Uh, so they are, what I document in this book is that the church is very focused on how they are perceived and how they are reacting to what they are experiencing, again what they are experiencing, right as rapid shifts and changes. So things that feel like threats to them to get to your question, right? Feminism, gender equality the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, right? The legalization of same-sex marriage in 2015. And so religious affiliation is declining, right? We know that the church wants people and they want young people in the door uh, and they are working to figure out how to make that happen. But this story is not just as simple as a concern over kind of religious or group decline. Instead, I open this book with this story about this messiness, this um, idea about the operating table, because it highlights two bigger stories that I tell in this book. One is that some conservative white evangelicals were not thrilled with Trump. Uh, that doesn't mean they didn't vote for him. The point they, I make is that they found someone who can kind of do this, quote unquote, ugly work for them that they don't want to do. Um, but, but two, that Trump and you know the Tea Party movement that preceded him, the massive conservative fights we've seen in the wake of Trump, these are all part of a bigger uh, kind of white evangelical fight and movement about concerns related to loss of political power and the loss of this kind of great cultural influence that they've enjoyed for many decades. And this political and cultural power has meant that they can fight to protect the interests of white Christians and really here we mean most often white Christian men. And they feel that these fights are not only about them, right? But fights for the soul of the nation. Uh, Gerardo Marty, who's a sociologist of religion. He has this great line that the lived experiences of white Christian men and women are often synonymous with what is understood to be American, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this group, like many other kind of evangelical groups across the U.S., they don't want to lose that status, uh, whether per- perceived or real, and. And I think that's something we've really overlooked um, in some of these communities, like the one I document in my book, right? As you said, I was in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I was uh, just outside of one of the most a-religious uh, cities mm-hmm. in the nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these aren't where folks are out on the streets holding a Trump or you know, MAGA sign on the corner, right? But they are still working for and fighting to hold on to a power and cultural status in kind of similar but quieter ways. And I think that's something we really need to continue to pay close attention to.
0: Yes, definitely. So I want to build on something you said and that you mentioned in the book, and that's this idea about external threats that white evangelicals are facing. And you mentioned a few just now that these threats feminism, LGBTQ equality, racial justice. I guess my question is, why do white evangelicals experience those things as threats? In other words, why not take the attitude that something is fine for others, but it isn't how I'm going to live? Why feel threatened? What is their fear of what could happen?
1: That's a great question. Religious groups or any social group really uh, provide members of those groups with a sense of identity, right? A sense of meaning, a set of morals to understand themselves and the world around them. Um, And so an easy way of teaching these identities and beliefs and values to a group of people is to show that group of people who they are not. Religious groups and white evangelicals in particular I think can gain strength and a sense of meaning by engaging in kind of social conflicts with other groups. And so these groups can be real or they can be imagined, right? That actually okay. doesn't matter. What uh-huh. does matter is that talking about the world in terms of these threats, things that people are up against can be very effective at building a sense of internal solidarity for a group. It can really help a group thrive. And so part of this Understanding and use of the language of threats is a reflection of the history of the white evangelical movement in the United States and its origins, which would be 10 podcasts. Part of it, I think, is really just what it means to be part of a social group. And and for white evangelicals, I think this also goes back to a, a kind of specific point about their own sense of I- identity is that it's also about what it means to be American for them. And, and hmm. so they want to retain kind of both the authority and the privileges that have always come hand in hand with being members of a dominant group in the US. And here, I mean, dominant in terms of racial privileges, class privileges, and political power, right? And they don't want to lose that. And importantly, what I'm trying to do with this book, and as I trace throughout the book, is um, that white evangelical understandings of the family, of gender divisions within the family, of understandings of race and evangelical theology of marriage, <laughs> these things mm-hmm. are all so deeply intertwined. Mm-hmm. They cannot afford to say, sure, like that's fine for others to fight for trans rights, right? They can't do that because one of these threats in their mind is connected and intertwined with all of the others. So if they sit back, their entire project risks unraveling.
0: Interesting, so that's the fear. To support one, it like pulls the thread that unravels everything, perhaps, interesting. So for many people, in fact, maybe even for many listeners of the Revealer podcast, they see white evangelical Christians as their main enemy and main foe in preventing fuller equality for women, LGBTQ people, and people of color. So I'm curious to what extent do the white evangelicals that you've spent time with have a sense that millions of Americans see them as the problem? And what do they make of that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, This is a great
1: question. Um, You know, I spent over two years, closer to three years with people who talk very adamantly and and really at times truly obsessed (laughs) over who was not in the church with them. And importantly, uh, kind of how to fight uh, against the moral wrongdoings of a society right? that in their mind contribute to religious decline, how to work with groups of people they feel threatened by in order to better understand them, and I think most interestingly, how to change their messaging as a church to ultimately kind of get individuals in And the white evangelicals I I studied never see themselves as the problem in the sense of how you and I would talk about the problem, right? Of acknowledging their behaviors and beliefs in ways that might lead to understandings of how they contribute to inequalities and promote hateful rhetoric and ideas, right? Instead, they actually see some of their kind of current messaging around social issues and perhaps some of their current practices as the problem. And I'll give you an example Hmm. here. The lead pastor of the church that I studied talked quite a bit about same sex marriage. Um, and during one sermon that was part of a much larger uh, series on sex, he described these seismic shifts culturally when it comes to LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, he told the congregation on a Sunday morning, you know, he said that culture has placed those with non affirming views on notice. He said, if you have a non-affirming view of gay marriage, you are now an extremist culturally. And what I think is interesting here is that that pastor then did not encourage the congregation to lean into that extremism as he sees as a label they've been given, but rather he and many in the congregation then take that kind of quote unquote notice and talk at length about how to love their LGBTQ community members, right? And church members, although they never talk about gay folks being inside the church, um, they talk at length, kind of the lead pastors would talk at length about how to love uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And in, this came up in multiple interviews that I conducted with church members as well. Um, and importantly, they were all wrestling with how to show these individuals enough love so that they would come into church where they would then, you know, tell this community that they don't believe their marriage is valid, right? <laughs> but, but the goal is to get folks in um, so that they can share their beliefs, right? One of the main t- of evangelism is to evangelize right to spread the word of God so they do not see themselves as the problem to the issues that our social world faces rather that they can offer the solution in a very de- divided and again messy world thinking of themselves as the problem here would require an entire reorientation uh, to their worldview um, And it's hard to think of yourself as a problem when, uh, your kind of solution that you put out in the church to extremism is to say that you need to love people, (laughs) right? Hmm. Even if that love comes with a big asterisk next to it that we can Mm -hmm. talk more about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering then if you can talk a bit about how, white, predominantly white evangelical churches are recruiting people in these years of much polarization? How are they dealing? If, you know, they have some awareness that they have an image issue, they may not see themselves as a problem, but what are their strategies to recruit people to join their churches who maybe didn't grow up in these communities?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I want to be clear that responses to this image issue vary. Right. We're seeing a range um, from uh, white evangelical churches across the U.S. right now where some are adopting and speaking very openly about kind of the promise of white Christian nationalism. <laughs> kind of on another end of the spectrum are those that are a bit more like the church I studied, uh, conservative, but who understand that some things need to shift if they are going to retain the status and grow as a group. And what I think is so interesting are these churches, right, that are working to shift their messaging Mm -hmm. and are very worried about their imaging to try to let people in, right? To recruit Mm -hmm. more folks. And so Mm -hmm. I think paying attention to the churches that are dealing with this image issue um, is a really good current way to study the more subtle ways in which inequalities persist. And And so one of the ways um, that the community I studied is dealing with this image issue is to provide space for what they continuously call, again, the messiness of current debates, right? The things they are working through. I got to watch a lot of conversations about complex feelings and beliefs unfold. And again, very importantly, the church leadership and small groups within the church are really encouraging space to have these debates, to talk through this messiness so that they can kind of regroup um, and and be more effective at reaching out to younger generations. Um, And one of my favorite examples of this is debates about feminism, right? This isn't necessarily something we would assume uh, that a white evangelical megachurch is debating. But I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. Um, It was Super Bowl Sunday. This is, you know, five, six years back now. And the worship band, had finished playing and the youth ministry pastor walked onto the stage and he started talking about the new elaborate stage backdrop and the thing that was really actually on everyone's mind that day, right? Which was the big game that afternoon. And and this pastor who I call Pastor Adam in the book, as was his job on the weekends to make announcements about upcoming events, uh, right? He made a brief announcement that the church would be hosting uh, what they called a ladies lunch the following weekend. And uh, Pastor Adam included the detail to make very clear that this lunch is for women only. And he then paused um, up on stage and he said, hmm, I'm sure there will be lots of delicious food. He paused again and then wondered out loud. Uh, He said, what do women eat? And he paused again and he said, dainty foods. Yes, probably something dainty. And so he laughs. He leaves the stage and many in the congregation, a room full of about 500 people at that point, laughed as well. And here's where things get kind of interesting, though. The main pastor then walks up onto the stage. He smiles. He adjusts his, um, his headset and mic, right. And he said, "For all the feminists in the room, I want to start by acknowledging that men and women eat the same food." And so, a good portion of the room laughs at this. Many, in fact, cheered and clapped in response. Um, mm-hmm. To which the lead pastor said, "Wow, you know, feminism is alive and well out there." And. And this was to more laughter. Um, he closed by saying, for some, you know, he, he said, I bet just hearing the F word, and again, here the F word is feminism. Um, he said, I bet just hearing the F word, right, you just switch churches in your head. Um, and so more people laughed and the sermon began. And, and so the... The lead pastor here, he acknowledged these differences in beliefs that might be existing right within one room uh, during one of three sermons that day. He held space through the form of jokes, right? And then continued on with his sermon. I started asking everyone I interviewed (laughs) about feminism after after this sermon, right? And as I document in the book, I got rapidly, like just very different uh, responses to this question. And importantly, kind of acknowledgement from many that the church is giving them the space to work through their thoughts on this and and really, again, encouraging it right now. However, right, they do also give guidance on it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? They're allowing Mm -hmm. for that space, but they are coming down with very clear beliefs, really to them. Again, to kind of deal with the image issue is to engage in this messy work. Um, and, and that's what this church was doing.
0: I mean, there's, I could ask 25 questions based on that story alone, because it's like both the, you know, I guess there's room for discussion about feminism, but it's also feminism is being used as a joke and the other F word. And so it doesn't feel like totally inclusive, but I guess steps towards perhaps something for some. Um, Well, so then I I guess, you know, sort of staying on that, I want to pull out something that you write in the book's introduction and you say that quote, White evangelicals are willing to work to change with the times in an effort to uphold their cultural relevance, especially around questions and beliefs related to gender sexuality and the white family, end quote. So how so? You know, beyond the story that you've just shared, that's fascinating. How are white evangelicals working to change specifically around issues related to gender and sexuality?
1: Yeah, and, and much like we can see in that example about the F word, right, feminism, they're they're not changing core beliefs, but they're working to change messaging around mm, said beliefs. Mm-hmm, mm. And I'll give an example here specifically about gender and sexuality. So, evangelical megachurches—so um, this is usually uh, churches that have at least a thousand uh, members in their congregation. Um, churches that are this big um, tend to have small groups and rely on kind of small groups for places where individuals can kind of connect and create community outside of these big Sunday sermons, right? And so, small groups are a really fascinating place <laughs> to kind of uh, be able to witness these kind of debates, these on this on the ground. Messiness, right? Um, And to also understand uh, what are current issues for evangelical communities, because small groups can have kind of specific themes associated with them. Um, In the past, uh, many evangelical churches across the U.S. uh, used to have lots of small groups devoted to what they would call SSA. Okay, and so that's an acronym for same-sex attraction. Um, and so these were small groups where people could come together and talk through, and here I'm using quotes around the word sin. Um, I don't want to imply this as a sin, right? But that's is the language they're using, uh, where they could come together and talk about these sin- sins, work through them, and be held accountable for them. Now, fast forward to 2017, um, when I'm in this church where the leadership is now talking about how... They are on notice for being extremist in their views about same-sex marriage, right? And couple that with it being a church that wants to work on its image and get people to come sit with them on a Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So what I saw um, during my time, there was a major pivot to small groups focused on marriage. So there were no groups uh, focused on same-sex attraction during my time there. They all disappeared. Um, instead, we saw the shift to small groups focused on marriage. And here I mean a heterosexual marriage. Um, and... <laughs> I love this, but one small group was literally titled "Stay Married" with an exclamation point in all caps, right? And and so <laughs> the messaging shifted, right? Where the church was all of a sudden focusing quite a bit on heterosexuality, and, and this gets back to your question about external threats, right? And my response about the importance of having a group to compare yourself against. Mm-hmm. If same-sex couples can get married now, uh, what does that mean for? <laughs> uh, uh, marriages in the church for heterosexual marriages, are they still sacred? And couple this with larger kind of demographic trends that we're seeing, right? If people are staying single longer, uh, if God forbid, right, younger people in the church are asking questions about premarital sex or mm-hmm. remarriage or mm-hmm. cohabitation. What does this institution of marriage that we've been protecting uh, mean and need to look like going forward? Um and part of that answer is a shifting of focus to, to ask those questions and take the time to do that. And in part two, a shift in language around conversations about same-sex marriage and attraction when they do talk about it. Um, it so on a... Sunday sermon um, in that same series about sex that I alluded to earlier, the pastor, the lead pastor of this church did something that was somewhat surprising to me. I'll be honest at that time, which was, he said, you know, I want to throw out the logic of hate the sin, love the sinner. Um, He said, what if instead, right? He said, we acknowledge that everyone is a little bit broken. Everyone is struggling. And he said, and I'm going to quote him here. He said, quote, can we change it to this? Hate my own sin and love others. Can we do that one instead? So no more love the sinner, hate the sin. That's kind of become cliche. How about hate my own sin and love others? Are we cool with that one instead? End quote. Uh, in both kind of small groups and individual interviews, uh, people debated these ideas. They shared their discomfort with them, and they verbally worked through what it might mean to love someone, right, who is LGBTQ. Um, and again, the church is creating space for and encouraging those conversations. However, they are not encouraging a change in beliefs, right? This is another example of how they're working on their imaging um, and how these inequalities can still persist in more subtle ways.
0: Right. Because the teaching didn't change at all. Right. So, okay. So building on that, then you say that the evangelical community that you observe for years sees itself as quote, a welcoming place for the LGBTQ community, which I have to admit when I read that gave me pause. So how do they see themselves as welcoming to LGBTQ people? And, and how do you interpret that?
1: Yeah, that should give you pause breath. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we think about this narrative of hate my own sin and love others, right, we think perhaps that that could invoke feelings of empathy, which it might for some. Uh, but as I document in this book, it can also be used to put forth a logic of overcoming all sins. And I'll I'll talk a bit more about that, right? That is like, if we are all of a sudden treating everyone's sexual sins as the same, again, Mm -hmm. sins Mm -hmm. and quotes here for me, right? If someone can say, overcome a a pornography addiction, someone else can overcome same-sex attraction. Um, Those struggles can be understood as the same, And then difference is erased. Um, And so then a new logic for dismissing support of same-sex relationships and marriage can emerge. Um, But these quote-unquote struggles, right, they are different, (laughs) right? And so in the same sermon that I was discussing earlier and provided an example from, that same lead pastor, you know, said that for gay-identifying individuals, he said sexuality might feel like something that is the air that you breathe, And he said that, you know, quote, he would argue that it's not who you are. It's part of who you are. Like your favorite color is a part of who you are. But (laughs) we're not discriminated against for loving the color blue or purple. Right.
0: Um,
1: And so in minimizing these differences, the church can kind of work to fold everyone in on these same collective battles uh, to appear welcoming in that regard. And then conveniently ignore the work that is actually required uh, to Mm -hmm. address Mm -hmm. homophobia, kind Mm -hmm. of a part of the history of the church and the contemporary uh, moment um, of the white evangelical church. And likening sexual desire and identity to a favorite color, cannot undo the harm that an institution has perpetuated for generations. But if they're going to use that logic of, you know, hate my own sins, love others... (laughs) <laughs> right that brings us back to this theme of love of course they're going to think of themselves as welcoming mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um but uh, as we know they are by no means an open and affirming congregation um and, and the way that they kind of get at that happy medium i think for themselves and to really tell themselves they are welcoming it is again to kind of compare themselves against someone else and in this case a more uh, extreme um i interviewed this man who is in his late twenties about kind of where he sees the church going forward. And and he said, you know, he told me that he thinks that he's seen the evangelical church and, and Christians in general kind of start to shift into what he called two extremes. And he said, I think that's going to be a lot better. Because he said, I think it will be easier to identify the churches that preach hate as different (laughs) and that more people are going to understand this difference between the two. And he said, if Christianity could push a little bit more like that, right, then we as a church could say that's an extreme sect, right? They are not preaching love, which is what Jesus was teaching. And so he wants these certain Christian groups to continue towards those extremes that he and others in the community I studied have a group to point to as the ugly ones, right? To blame for Mm -hmm. and associate with this loss of status um, that this group feels that they are experiencing and from which they can also distance themselves.
0: Fascinating. I mean, not to editorialize here, but it's 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 interesting, all that you're describing, the lengths that it sounds like people go to to see themselves as loving. So I want to shift a bit because another uh, important focal point of your book is... Race, and um, as you've mentioned, the the community that you studied for several years is a majority white evangelical community. So I'm curious how you would describe their responses to the racial issues of the past several years, like the Black Lives Matter movement. What what is what are the topics that are animating white evangelical communities uh, around issues of race and, and Black Lives Matter and those sorts of things?
1: In the spring of 2016. The lead pastor uh, at this church that I studied invited out a guest pastor, which was not an uncommon practice. Uh, but this guest pastor was an older Black man, and he happened to be from Ferguson, Missouri. This is where Michael Brown had been shot and killed by police two years earlier, right? And, and that, of course, contributed to the mobilization um, that became known as the Black Lives Matter movement. And the lead pastor spoke about this guest pastor's visit for weeks. And from a place that held such symbolic meaning, right, at this moment in U.S. history, he said that he'd be coming to talk to the church about the state of race in the country. And uh, so I was, you know, really um, fascinated in what was to come. And the Sunday morning of this visit, this guest pastor got up and gave a brief introduction was joking around with the audience. Um, and, and at one point he said, this isn't PC, right? Politically correct. Um, but I'm going to say it to which a white woman in the front row said very loudly, she responded, she said, say it. Right. And this was behavior. I never witnessed in other sermons, right? This, this hmm. whole response was not a, a way in which the audience usually engaged with okay. leadership. Um, and so the guest pastor smiled and he said, I'm going to use a Mississippiism. He said, I ain't interested in Black Lives Matter. I'm interested in All Lives Matter. The devil sold us a lie. And at this point, Brett, the congregation rose to a standing ovation. And that was the only instance in over two years that I ever saw that occur. And there are some complicated things happening here, right, that reflect larger themes I discuss in the book uh, related to all these, quote unquote, threats that the church is taking on. Um, And I I just want to kind of talk about a few of them. So, you know, one, the congregation and really church leadership invited a black man from Ferguson, Missouri, to speak with them they can then say that they are doing the work, right? They are having conversations about race. Um, And back to your earlier question, that they are therefore not the problem (laughs) in this messy and divided world that we find ourselves in. And second, this sermon and many subsequent conversations to come align with church messaging around race and solutions to racial inequality that lie in love, uh, that people need to love each other And then that things will be okay. Politics and political divides and racial divides are not the answer. Love is. And this combination (laughs) that this congregation sees themselves as loving and that love is the solution to uh, social inequalities and that a black man got on a plane from Ferguson, Missouri and told them that they aren't racist, (laughs)
0: right? Mm -hmm. That
1: combination is a really powerful cocktail.
0: So thank you. That's very helpful. So I do want to ask about something uh, sort of related to current events that isn't exactly in your book, but I imagine that you have some thoughts, and I'm curious to hear your insights. So opposition to transgender Americans has really ramped up in the past 12 months, though anti-trans legislation has been ongoing for the past several years. And now we're seeing several states target transgender adolescents and their parents. And according to the Pew Research Center, these anti-trans laws are widely supported By evangelicals. Can you talk to us a bit about why you think evangelicals are now so fixated on transgender people?
1: So, first, you know, I think it's not just about evangelicals, but about right wing politics and right-wing kind of Christian politics. And I say that because I think we've got some grassroots organizing and some large groups backing these pushes outside of churches. This is a much bigger organized fight that we're witnessing right now. However, (laughs) this fight is tapping into a logic that we can see in churches. um, And even importantly in the kind of less conservative churches, like the ones I studied. Mm -hmm. Um, And that logic is that is something I've, alluded to is that these fights they're not just about Uh, transgender people or trans kids, trans folks are currently bearing a brutal weight um, of these political fights, but it's it's not just about them and their lives, um, but instead they've become kind of the latest stand-in in a long string of conservative and evangelical fights at the intersections of gender, yes, but also race, ideas about heterosexuality, the institution of marriage, uh, shifts in sexuality and the family. And, and I'll give you a, a brief example to try to highlight what I mean here. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned that I interviewed lots of people about their thoughts on feminism, right? After lead Pastor mentioned the F word. And many times, right, when I would ask individuals about their thoughts on feminism, they would bring up 20 different other things, Uh, things Hmm. like marriage, right? Things like the gender division of labor. And that's not a surprising one kind of given the focus of many early feminist fights. Right. Um, But in a number of cases, and again, this was in 2017, right? Uh, Trans rights came up Hmm. and In one interview, an individual was telling me about uh, what he and his wife was interviewing at the same time, talked about as kind of the good parts of feminism, uh, equal pay and a woman's ability to lead in the church. Uh, But then he quickly said that there was this fine line between those good things and evangelicals being caring and loving and accepting, right? Also good things. But the bad thing, which for him was society becoming what he described as too Uh, thin-skinned. And he went on to say that both feminism and social justice movements have contributed to this. And He then had a quick turn, right? Um, It seemed disconnected, but it's very much not. um, And that's my point to trans rights, um, right? He said, don't get me wrong. I'm accepting of trans rights and using bathrooms. But this whole, did you assume my gender thing is too far and he talked about seeing baristas at Starbucks, right? Who had pronouns on their name tags. And he said, you know, that can be helpful for people like him who are trying to learn. But that he gets frustrated when individuals get mad, right? If they're misgendered. And, and so I paused in there and I asked him, if that had happened to him, right. If, if he had been in a situation in which he felt like trans folks were getting mad at him for
0: um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh,
1: misgendering them or incorrectly assuming their gender. Right. And he quickly, quickly like waved his hand at me. He's like, no, that's never happened. This is a question that started about feminism. It quickly turned to a conversation about trans rights and a fear and anger over a scenario that he imagined but had never actually experienced. And so at the great expense of some of the most marginalized in our Mm -hmm. society, Mm -hmm. right? fights for trans rights become fights for much bigger beliefs about gender and the family um, that are core a core part of kind of evangelical beliefs that I really try to unpack in this text.
0: Thank you. And I like just hearing that you press on these, you know, statements that are given to see sort of like what if they're just phantom ideas or if they're based in something. So for our last question, uh, as someone who has spent much time with studying and thinking about white evangelicals, what do you want more of us to know and to think about when it comes to white evangelicals and their place in American culture and politics, perhaps as we look ahead to the 2024 election?
1: Yeah, I, I think there has been, understandably and rightfully, uh, big shifts in the attention that we pay kind of to this voting block uh, since Trump was elected, right? That's good, and that is frankly long overdue. Right. Fast forward a bit. We then endure a horrific pandemic and the gross inequalities that it laid bare. And then in November 2020, 76 percent of white evangelicals voted for Trump for a second term. These issues are not going away. Um, And and when I present this research, I've often been asked kind of what a breaking point might look like, a moment, a decision, a fissure between white uh, evangelicalism and conservative politics in the U.S., uh, that breaking point isn't happening anytime soon. Um, instead, mm-hmm. you know, I think some of the mechanisms that fuel this continued relationship are shifting. And, and that would be my ask, that we pay attention to those, right? I, I conducted this research outside of one of the least religious metropolitan areas in the US, right? And then the Pacific Northwest in a region um, full of what many refer to, right? As the coastal elites, and I did so in part because we need to pay more attention to the ways in which conservative politics are fueled in areas presumed to be liberal or even progressive, right? Mm-hmm. There, are, there are no kind of uh, bubbles free from inequalities related to class, to gender, to race, to sexuality, anything or anyone that suggests otherwise, right, kind of ignores the realities of the reproduction of inequality, and in many cases, furthers what Is kind of in many ways a false dichotomy between liberal and conservative regions uh, of the US in the first place. We're often quick to picture kind of the MAGA hat wearing man who's screaming at the front lines of a rally in Virginia, or the individuals who stormed the US Capitol building Mm -hmm. in January 2021, um, or the folks that are preaching beliefs and support related to white Christian nationalism we need to pay more attention to the people who sit quietly in a Mm -hmm. church among the coastal elites in Mm the places like the PNW. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And who are voting for someone else to do the ugly work for them. Um, Because all of these individuals bear the same reflection, right? The one is get often given much less attention.
0: Mm. That's powerful. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sarah Diefendorf. You can find an excerpt from her book, The Holy Vote, Inequality and Anxiety Among White Evangelicals, in the Revealer's upcoming April issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of The Holy Vote at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. It will be our first to look in-depth at voodoo and the religious practices countless black Americans and others find deeply meaningful in the meantime I hope you stay safe and healthy thanks for listening to this episode of the revealer podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson if you'd like to get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you email us at the at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org